Everything is a season, and this is the season of endings. This will be the last All Together podcast. It has been such a pleasure to bring you spirituality and religion and ethics conversations every week. Today we're going to look back at just a few of the highlights of the kind of conversations that have happened on All Together. We'll listen to my interview with President Jimmy Carter, with rock and roll icon Patti Smith, and many others. So I hope today you will enjoy these and recognize that the possibility of conversation and encounter is always there. And please enjoy these clips. We're going to start with a conversation I had with Patti Smith, who I started wanting to talk to her because I saw this piece about her. She was singing in the Vatican Christmas concert, and I thought, wow, that's so wild that this you know, crazy, wonderful poet and rock and roll singer was in the Vatican Christmas concert. And then once I got to talking to her, I realized why she was there and specifically what she loves about religion and what is ultimately at the core of every faith tradition. You know, no matter how, you know, uh, uh, many times it's said or how simplistic it seems, everything stems from love. And that's, you know, and if, if someone wanted to understand Christ's teachings, for instance, what is it? It's based on, you know, love and to love one another. Everything else could fall away. The dogma, the art, the, you know, the churches, everything could fall away. It's just basically to love oneself, to love one another, um, to, to love the earth. But but these things also, the, the the imagination and the mind of man is so you know, interesting and so captivating. So I am attracted to these things. I am attracted to religious art of, you know, all faiths. I'm attracted to the the poetry that comes from it. I'm attracted to the, the prayers or even the vestments that people wear. But I don't mistake those things for the absolute principle. This next conversation happened between a Muslim and a Jew, both students at New York University, who are part of an interfaith dialogue group called Bridges. I guarantee you that this will give you hope like it gave me hope. The challenge uh, for interfaith dialogue in general is that there are a lot of great people who are in the room and there's even more great people or you know people with very strong opinions who are not in the room and that uh, is you know is part of the issue i mean and and one of the questions i have is how do you talk about what you do in bridges within the orthodox jewish community or within the muslim community when there are people there who are saying forget it you know, I mean, in, I think intra-faith dialogue is actually even more difficult and more important 
than interfaith dialogue. For sure. Um, I was actually the vice president of our Muslim Students Association last year. So I've been working closely with Bridges, like the Muslim Jewish community, as well as in the intra-Muslim community, I guess. Um, and one way that we sort of showcase uh, the successes and just the beauty behind Bridges is, well, our, our I guess this is my favorite event of the year. It's called Jummah Shabbat. Um, it's basically a day, a Friday, where uh, Jewish students are invited to go to uh, Jummah services in the afternoon. And then Muslim students are invited to go to Shabbat services in the evening. And then it culminates in a big dinner. It's really fancy. It's really fun. Um, and you get to really hear students' stories about their beginning of their experiences in, in college at NYU. And then sort of how Bridges, I guess shaped that experience into something even more beautiful. Um, and so, well, obviously, I invite everyone to come. It's definitely a wonderful experience, right? right? So fun. <laughs> yeah. Professor Joy Layden made history when she became the first trans woman to teach at an Orthodox Jewish university. Dr. Layden spoke to me about a ritual that she went through that made all the difference in her transition. On the website TransTorah, there are suggested rituals for those people who are transitioning who wish a Jewish blessing created by a rabbi. I asked Joy if she had ever gone through such a ritual, and she told me about her friend Rabbi Jill Hammer, who is one of the foremost creators of Jewish rituals and who encouraged Joy to go through the ritual herself. I'd been living as myself for years, and, you know, I still, there was something still unsettled about my sense of identity. And she said, you know, I know you won't like this, but I think you need a ritual. And I thought, yeah, that really, what are you talking about? She said, no, just really trust me on this. It seems silly, but rituals make a difference. Would you like me to come up with one? And she and my then-girlfriend and now-wife um, planned a ritual using these poems that I had written, um, which they wrote out onto scrolls and tied to the branches of a tree that they bought, and they presented me with a talit and a kippah, and they each spoke um, about their experience of me. And I was, it was real in a way that I didn't expect. So I was on the roof of my um, girlfriend's building waiting to be called down. And I was sobbing. Um, I just felt completely shattered. And my best friend, the first person I came out to and who really had sustained me through everything, came up and she said, you know, I know that, the, you know, I know that this feels hard for you and you feel like you don't deserve it, but you don't have to do anything. You just have to come and, and be there. And I was so overwhelmed um, at the end as they read these poems that were I'd written in the voice of different aspects of the self that were calling to me to become whole. And the, but the language I used came from the Torah, because I didn't have a language for that. So I'm hearing this coming from them in their voices, and at the end, really, all I could say was, I have not yet been worthy of your love, but I will be. And is that an ongoing quest? Or are you feeling that you've arrived at that? Well, that worthiness? I do, you know, I do think that we continue to create ourselves through what we do every day and every moment. But the 
But that ritual solidified my sense of self. It gave me a sense that I really am this person, and this person has this mission. And this mission is driven by the awareness of being loved and wanting to respond to that. So it's not worthiness in the sense of if I fail, then I disappear, which is really a lot of the way I felt most of my life. It's I'm here, and therefore I want to live up to this extraordinary abundance of love. Reverend Tony Lee is the pastor of Community of Hope AME Church. I spoke to him right after the Eric Garner non-indictment of the police officer who choked him to death. Reverend Lee pastors a church in a very tough section of Prince George's County in Maryland. And over the years, his church and the community have been able to develop and completely change the relationship between the community and the police department. He spoke to me about a moment when the police commissioner came in after Ferguson and accepted a blessing and prayed with that church. It's another example of hope through conversation, through engagement, and through hard work. Reverend, where were you when you heard the verdict of the Eric Garner case? It was amazing because I was in the um, barbershop. Um, I was in the barbershop, and for some reason I hadn't heard it yet, and the barber was telling me, and it was just, it was heartbreaking. I'm just totally heartbreaking. Yeah. And what was the conversation in the barbershop? Everyone was just amazed. Um, I mean, everyone was just amazed, especially with the video and it, I mean, just all the facts of the case. Um, it, it just it, it just blew everyone's mind um, not to get an indictment. I mean, so we're not even talking about that, you know, he, he got off in a trial, but for there not to be seen to be enough probable cause um, to even even go to trial, I mean, I mean that piece was what was just um, drastically painful um, and showed that there just are uh, two different justice systems and, and that black lives just don't seem to matter. And, and I think that was a challenge. I want to get at that because one of the things that I'm feeling right now is a lot of um, just impotence, not sure exactly what exactly I should do with someone, you know, as a white person, but just as an American who's who's outraged by this. And I know that you've been just what the work you've been doing is exemplary uh, in in your community in Maryland. And I was wondering, you know, you just had this amazing event um, where you had the police commissioner from your area come in after the Ferguson uh, lack of indictment and and you all prayed together and you you know there's a moving photo of you with your hand on the chief of police's head praying over him and I you know I just feel like there's some sort of you know it gives me hope that people like you are doing what you're doing but this has just got to be a blow I'm wondering like how do you maintain hope in the face of what we just saw I think for us Paul one of the things that um, the, the the backdrop for that whole scene with the chief of police is Prince George's County, Maryland, used to, um, the police department used to have per capita the num the largest number of police killings on civilians as well as the largest number of police brutality, and all the police got off. It took federal investigation, and it took the federal government to come in the Justice Department and start to lock 
some police, lock up some bad cops, and that helped to shift things. It shifted. Um, it it helped folks take seriously what needed to happen in our county. Got new leadership in place. Um, even in the, in the state's attorney's office, new leadership. You had a shifting in even the demographics of the police department. And so it was out of that hard work um, that then we were able to build this community policing type of piece that helped us to move to the kind of relationships we had that I could call the chief of police and say, hey, I want you to come in for church. And he'd come in. But that's because... We've been working together over the last eight years, um, but that comes out of initially that federal inter- intervention. And so that I have hope in that. I believe it's a need for people to continue to organize and press for the system to be fair and press for federal intervention where it's needed so that systems can change and change and transform and that's what we witnessed in Prince George's County was a bad system um, because there was intervention um, was able to be turned around um, and now it's much better and the system is fair and people are held accountable. Sharon Salzberg is a Buddhist teacher and a meditation, well, I want to say guru. She's a friend of mine and a beautiful soul. She came in because I was having some questions and concerns even about the principle of karma and how we use it. Well, you know, I think we are kind of missing it. There was one point in which I, I thought I wanted to write a book on karma. And then I thought, oh, that's too complicated. So we'll see how I do in a conversation. Maybe you'll be the inspiration for my actually thinking about it again. Um, There are a few things about karma. I think um, it is highly misunderstood, and it's also not easy to understand. Uh, The Buddha said something like, you will never fully understand karma with your rational mind. And if you try, you'll go crazy. Something like that. Uh, It was one of those things that are unfathomable. And yet I think we can have intuitions, we can have a sense of things and uh, kind of a a hint of things that's helpful. There are, of course, ways in which the phrase could be used that's that's harmful. Um, For example, you know, the examples you just used, there's a saying in Tibet, it goes something like, you should never tell someone, you should never use the word karma in talking to someone else. Like you see a guy lying in the gutter, you don't say, well, it's your karma, It's only a concept you should apply to yourself as a matter of investigation. Well, I think that's already very helpful Uh, and and something that allows us to remove perhaps judgment from the equation, which I think could be – it's susceptible to judgment, isn't it? Oh, totally. Well, poor people – yeah, um, karma. karma, you know, um, they must have done something really bad in a past life. That's kind of the follow-up to karma. Yeah. Um, maybe we can back up and just talk about what does the word karma mean? What is the translation that we're y- using? Uh, the actual translation, I think, is action. And the idea um, within the Buddhist tradition is that the intention behind an action has a kind of moral power. It has an energy to it. That is like planting a seed. Uh, Like any seed, the soil in which it's planted may make quite a difference in its manifestation. You know, so it's not like a singular A equals B. Like I killed a lot of mosquitoes in a previous life. Therefore, you know, I had this onslaught of bugs coming at me. 
Um, it's not singular. It's not simple like that. But we can see kind of tendencies or predilections. We plant certain kinds of seeds based on the intentions behind our actions. We may be really stingy, for example. And a karmic consequence of that could be that we have untold riches by external measures, but within we feel deprived. We feel impoverished because we've created the kind of climate where there's never enough. There's never a feeling of enough. When you think about talking about spirituality or religion on the radio, you immediately think of Krista Tippett, who for years has an NPR show that was called Speaking of Faith and now is called On Being. Krista is a wonderful human being and a generous friend who agreed to talk to me about what it means to listen and how it's connected to the idea of hospitality. Listening is is about presence, right? It's not a withholding. It's about being intensely there. So just in that, uh, I think that challenges a bit Again, one way we get a little bit trained, like because we're all do I am this too, we're all kind of educated now to be advocates, to be to be advocates for whatever we believe in. And so to the extent that and, and of course there's a place for that, but it's not what we should be all the time. Um, in that kind of context or like in the in the way we tend to set up discussions where it's usually a debate, right? It's this idea versus that idea. Listening tends to be this passive moment where you hold your tongue until it's your turn to talk again, right? <laughs> um, or even actively figure out the weakness. All right, or why you, you listen so that you can you can figure out what your next point will be <laughs> in rebuttal. And so I'm not saying that to be dismissive. I mean, I'm part of this culture too. I, I think we can become self-aware of some things that have become instinctive that are actually not good for us, that actually don't make us the people in the public space or the, the, kind, of, the kind of force in public space that we want to be, at least not all the time. So yeah, listening is, uh, it's, it's being curious Um which is a virtue which you can cultivate, you know, it's a decision. You can make a decision to be curious, to be interested. Now, if you make that decision, um, it's also a moment of vulnerability then. You, you have to open yourself to be surprised by what you hear, for to have it unsettle uh, some preconceptions that you went into, um, some perhaps some conclusions you've already reached about this person, which we do all the time on the basis of all kinds of things. Um, you have to open yourself to be surprised and, and you have to open yourself to be uh, unsettled and, and possibly changed. Uh, so it's, and, and also it's a moment of vulnerability, you know, in an adventurous way, I think of. I mean, I think all, every time I go into an interview, I do a huge amount of work to prepare. And I, I think of that preparation as much as anything else as an act of hospitality. Uh, obviously, I want to do a good interview. I want to be intelligent. I want to be informed. But I think the most powerful effect that all that preparation has is that when someone sits with me in my conversational space, they very quickly know and this transmits itself almost, you know, physically, palpably, that I get them, right? that I 
that that I that I honor them. And you know, that you, I mean, we've all had this experience. The difference between sitting with someone and after just two or three seconds, you realize that they have no idea. You know, that you are going to have to explain to them that you're going to have to defend that no matter how much you explain or defend they're you know and then you're not your best self you know that that defending mode and explaining mode is not the most interesting part of us but when you sit with somebody and you you just get you know they get me then there's this there's this relaxation that happens that goes through your body so I'm you know I'm not that interested in having people in like question and answer mode right I want them to be in a conversational mode so I think in some ways my listening is, you know, it's very participatory, right? I'm not just asking a question, listening to the answer, and then asking the next question. I'm, because I'm in there and I'm present, I'm responding. And that's actually one way I get people out of their own heads. Uh, you know, if, and, and even, even you know, with a, a, an authentic curiosity, you know, so someone says something and, and when I then have some kind of response of my own, then they respond to me and they go deeper and suddenly we're we're completely out of the realm of question and answer. Like we've wandered into this human interaction. And I think that, you know, just like many of us who are writers have had the experience that it's possible sometimes when you write, you actually put something into words on the page that you didn't know you knew or you didn't know you could say it that well. You had never connected that dot and on the page it becomes possible. The same thing happens in a real conversation. And, you know, to me, that is the measure of a great conversation is that the people involved are surprised. And maybe even if somebody's talking about something they've talked about a thousand times before, they put words around something that matters to them, something they know distinctively and have distinctively give voice to in a way they've never done that before. And the wonderful thing about radio is, you know, I get to be present for that moment as the person in conversation with them. But then the entire, you know, everybody listening to the podcast or the radio show um, is also present for that intimate moment. President Jimmy Carter turned 90 this year and he wrote a book about it. And I got a chance to talk to him just weeks before he announced that he had cancer. My final question to President Carter was about death and what happens to us after we die. In his response, he told me about his belief about life after death. But then he focused us back on this life and the importance of how we live in the here and now. You've seen death up close in, in that instance and also in all of your work. Um, you are now 90. Uh, hopefully we'll have another 90 years. But what, what is your thought about death and what happens to us after we die? And what, and what constitutes a good death for us? Well, I'm a Christian and I have, share the same faith that we all have, that, that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we're given, we're given a permanent life uh, after we after we are dead in some form which which we don't comprehend, I think the most uh, simple explanation of it is is Paul's use of the of a, a seed that is uh, like an acorn is planted and it becomes a tree. So you don't ever know what what the future is going to be after you have a new life. So I don't try to assess exactly what it will be, but I feel complete com- confident about it. But but also the basic uh, pr- principle in Christianity, at least is that we don't start living our future life after we are dead, 
but we start living our better future life now and try to let our you know our religious faith and our moral values and and our ambitions and so forth be shaped to do what we think is ultimately better for other people not in some future day but but in the life that we live today uh, one of the best examples of that was given to me by a uh, Cuban American pastor with whom I did went on one of my mission trips and his advice to me was we must love God and love the person who happens to be in front of us at any particular time that's a very profound theological statement I think and uh, pretty well encapsulates my own religious belief. President Carter, thank you so much for joining me on Altogether. It's, it's been a good interview, and I really do thank you. Did you hear that? Jimmy Carter said it was a good interview. Now that's something I will treasure forever. I want to thank all of you again for being part of this Altogether podcast. A special shout-out again to Caitlin Boguki, my producer and partner in crime and to all of the people at Huffington Post and all of the people who I interviewed and were part of the conversation on All Together. Thank you so much for making it into something beautiful. And until the next time, be well. This episode of All Together was produced by Caitlin Boguki and edited by Nick Offenberg. And please enjoy these clips. I don't know, but please enjoy these clips. All this time, you still don't know how to mute. Oh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that was Caitlin Boguki, who is the producer who has been here every single time. And w- I am insisting that this is a part of the podcast. Okay, we are about to go into the um, wonderful clips, but this is actually the behind the scenes shade that I have been dealing with for the last year and a half. Caitlin Boguki, a shout out to her. <laughs> the awful conditions. <laughs> yes, the horrible, the oppressive <laughs> conditions under which I've been working. <laughs>